This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U Mobile. 5G now with you. Good morning. You're listening to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. As the era of ultra-low interest rates comes to an end and a global recession looms overhead, how are private equity players adapting to the challenging macroeconomic conditions? Dato Sri Nicholas Bloy, co-founder and managing partner of Navis Capital Partners, joins me today to discuss the outlook for private equity in the APAC region. Navis Capital Partners has assets under management of some $5 billion US dollars across the Asia-Pacific. Nick, good morning. Thanks very much for joining me today. Good morning. Thank you. I'd like to start with looking back to the COVID-19 pandemic and how Navis Capital navigated the curveballs that came with the unprecedented shutdown of the global economy. When we look at your portfolio of companies, which spans a range of sectors, how did they weather the storm? What kind of strategies did you deploy to keep your investing companies afloat during this time? Yeah, that's a very good question. It was the one of the most brutal uh, business cycles um, we've ever had to go through. Uh, but of course, it's not the only business cycle that anybody in private equity or anybody that owns or runs a company uh, has had to go through for the, over the last 20 or 30 years. We've had the global financial crisis. We, we had the taper tantrum. We had the Asian financial crisis. So there is a certain sort of playbook that, that one develops for acute crises like this. And in Navis's case, it's helpful that we're always the controlling shareholder of the companies that we invest in. And so we can implement um, measures very, very quickly. So as we went into the pandemic, I think Navis had about 32 or 33 portfolio companies under our control at that moment in time. And that was a pretty diversified uh, portfolio. So some businesses were unaffected uh, by COVID. Some actually benefited uh, from COVID. But of course, anything that was in more in the retail sector where they got shut down, uh, that was very, very difficult. And you simply go through a triage of identifying, okay, which are the most vulnerable? You know what's coming, right? So which are the most vulnerable companies? Don't worry about the ones that are more or less okay or are even going to benefit. Let's just focus on the, the, the 10 or 11 that are really going to be in trouble. And you immediately focus on cash preservation. You focus on cost control. You try and maximize uh, the credit that you're able to get from your banking relationships to make sure that they don't suddenly cut you off from a, a line of credit that you think you have. But if you, of course, if you can't draw it, it doesn't help you. And you go into crisis mode and, and you hunker down. Um, we did lose one business, one of those 32 or 33 companies. We did lose all our money on it, which was our MBO cinema business in Malaysia. And that was really a very tough business to save because obviously cinemas shut down. And mm. even when they reopened, uh, of course, Hollywood had shut down. And so there was no Hollywood content, no blockbusters to, to try and fill your cinemas. And so if you only have five or six people in the cinema, it, you know, the ticket revenue is much less than the cost of the air conditioning, the electricity and the, the, the staff costs that are required to get it going. And we just could not... Um, get that business through the crisis, unfortunately. So okay. we, we, we took a loss there. So one of the clear casualties, MBO Cinemas, you were reportedly looking for buyers as far back as 2018, though. Do you think you would have been able to secure a buyer if the pandemic hadn't struck? Uh, for sure, yeah. There I mean, were reports that the asking price was too high. That's why it took well, such I a think, long time yeah, for I, you to I, get a buyer. I, 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 probably with hindsight, they were right. Of course, we didn't know the pandemic was coming. But no, I don't think the asking price was too high. It was very reasonable. There are lots of transactions out there. So 
it's fairly easy to, to understand objectively what is the right kind of valuation for cinema assets. So if anybody made that assertion, it was probably a buyer who was hoping that we'd lower the price as opposed to an accurate reflection of reality. Now, you have the Asia Green Loop Continuation Fund that closed recently at 450 million US dollars. I wanted to ask whether the pandemic necessitated the setting up of this continuation fund, or was this something that was already in the pipeline for Navis? No, I think it was very much to do with the pandemic because we had uh, some residual companies in, in a fund that was getting pretty old and sort of, I would say, past its sell-by date, uh, to put it simply. And of course, it was very hard to exit uh, during the pandemic when people couldn't travel to do, to do their due diligence and so on. And also, in, in some cases, when performance was, was down because of the pandemic. And so a continuation fund basically gives you more time uh, for the situation to normalize and when people could travel again and when we could show recovering earnings. Um, I mean, that's obviously the best time to, to sell a business. So that was the reason for it. Okay. So how do you decide which companies roll over into a continuation fund? Is this something that all of the companies you're currently investing in um, get a share of or how does it work? No, these are just uh, individual companies um, that happen to have been owned by Navis for a long time and where during the ordinary course of business, we would have sold them, you know, a year before or two years before or three years before, but we haven't. Um, And we need to put them into a vehicle that extends their life. So if we have a young investment, Right now, for example, you know, we're investing in Aurelius Healthcare uh, in Malaysia. This is a private healthcare operator. That's a very young company. There's no need for that to go into a continuation fund because the vehicle that it sits in, which is called Navis 8, you know, has another 10-year life in front of it. And so there were five companies that um, were in the category that, that I was just describing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason we called it the Green Loop Fund is that all of them actually had an ESG kind of bias or, or agenda. Uh, which gave them a sort of identity um, beyond just being, you know, ones that that needed to be sold over the next two or three years. I would like to get your thoughts on the trends that you're seeing this year compared to last year. Global private equity witnessed a post-pandemic boom in 2021 that is set to be unmatched this year. We see data analytics from Prekin projecting a 27% slump in fundraising for 2022, given the current macroeconomic conditions. Is that a trend that Navis is experiencing as well, where fundraising and deal-making took a hit this year compared to last um, not not really in our case. Um, I think the hit has been felt by people in the sort of the tech investing space, which of course became quite a big part of investment activity for a lot of people, uh, particularly because valuations got so high. Uh, and so it suddenly became quite easy to write, you know, equity checks of several hundred million dollars, uh, which did not used to be the case uh, 10 or 20 years ago in, in venture investing. Mm. And that's the area that's taken the really big hit. But in the real economy, um, I mean, in the last 12 months, for example, in terms of deal activity, we've exited five companies, including Test, the one that I just described. And we've invested in maybe seven or eight uh, uh, new companies in different sectors, in healthcare, in private education, in software, and in food. And so uh, I think perhaps two things why we're why at least Navis is fortunate is we never did any tech investing, so we're not affected by that. Mm-hmm. We don't do leverage buyouts, so we're not particularly affected by rising interest rates. The only the only reason we worry about rising interest rates is the extent to which it dampens consumer or industrial demand. But we're not worried about it because we have a lot of debt in our balance sheets, which suddenly is going to become uh, a lot more expensive. And of course, we're focused on the real economy, which is uh, continuing to do just about okay. It's not in recession yet uh, in Southeast Asia. So, uh, but the point that you did bring up, the last point you 
you brought up was about fundraising, and fundraising has definitely slowed down. Now, fortunately, apart from the credit fund, we're not we're not fundraising at the moment. We're still midway through investing Navis Eight, mm-hmm. uh, which was our most recent uh, flagship fund. But we will probably start to fundraise towards the end of next year, or maybe early in 2024, for that fund. And I expect the situation will probably have have regularized then. But mm-hmm. the particular issue that people are facing is that the big pension funds and insurance companies of the world suddenly find themselves slightly over-allocated to private and illiquid assets uh, because, of course, the public equities uh, and the bonds that they're invested in have all shrunk dramatically in value. And therefore, suddenly, on in percentage terms, the percentage of their portfolios that are accounted for by private equity assets, for example, has gone up and above the sort of thresholds or ceilings that they've set. And so until they either change those ceilings or the value of their bond portfolio and their public equities portfolio grows uh, and, and then allows them to reset, uh, they won't be deploying any additional money or very little mm. into, into private equity. I want to talk a little bit about the um, philosophies behind your recent acquisitions. You named a few of the sectors that you've invested in recently. It ranges from food to education to um, fintech even. Um is there a unifying theme at play here? They're all in different countries, um, but is there some? Is there a thread that I guess ties all these investments together? Well, there are typically several threads, probably three different threads that Navis looks for. Some of which overlap with each other, um, but the most powerful one is just looking for growth, and particularly a particular sector in a particular country where that country's level of economic development is such that you can anticipate a surge or an acceleration in growth. And that's when, in an environment where you have rising household incomes, so they're rising quite sharply, for example, in Vietnam. And you know, t- 10 years ago, relatively few households in Vietnam could afford private education for their children. But at some point, when enough households by the million you know, get above the threshold where they have enough disposable income after the basics are taken care of to afford private education, suddenly you get a surge in demand. Mm. And of course, if there aren't enough places in private schools, to handle that surge in demand, that's a very nice opportunity for a growth investor because you, you buy a school, but then you expand it. Brownfield, you add a greenfield campus uh, and you fill it very, very quickly because there is pent up demand in that particular example. And every country in Southeast Asia, you know, it, 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 whether it's Malaysia at the more affluent end or Laos or Cambodia at the lesser developed end, all households are becoming wealthier. And so, you know, what Malaysians can suddenly afford in the next five years is different than what you know Cambodians or Vietnamese can afford in the next five years. But in each country, there are certain products and services and so on which benefit from that that phenomenon. Mm. So another example would be in certain types of private healthcare, for example. Um, now, there's no point in investing in a cardiovascular specialist hospital in a lesser developed economy because people don't have the lifestyle habits that lead to cardiovascular disease on a large scale. And so the public sector, you know, specialty hospitals, in the case of Malaysia, you think of IJN, right, which has been around forever. It's been around since I came to Malaysia, which is over 30 years ago. Well, there's always a a public sector specialist that's there to take care of the the average needs across the population. But, you know, when, when you don't have the diseases of affluence, there's no point building a specialty hospital that caters to them. Um, so in Cambodia, for example, we're not investing in a, a cardiovascular hospital right now. We're investing in a mother and child pediatric hospital mm-hmm. because, of course, uh, young families, as they become a bit more affluent, one of the first things they want to do before they even think about education is, oh, I'd like my child to be born in a 
private sector hospital because it's safer, it's less crowded, it feels better. And that's uh, that's a, a, something that's now surging in demand in some of the less developed okay. parts of Southeast Asia. I'm speaking to Dr. Nicholas Bloy, co-founder and managing partner of Navis Capital. When we come back, what's behind their foray into private credit? Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Thanks for staying tuned to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar and with me today is Dato Sri Nicholas Bloy, co-founder and managing partner of Navis Capital. I want to zoom into the performance of your existing funds based on what I could find publicly. And the um, IRR for the 2013 Vintage Asia Fund 7 um, is 10.8%. Um, in comparison, um, I think Prekin said that APEC private capital, capital funds had a median IRR of 18.2% for similar fund vintages. An earlier fund vintage of yours, Asia Fund 6, has a negative IRR of minus 0.2. So is it accurate to say that your funds are underperforming? Um, not really. I mean, I think the Navis 6 fund, which is the, the last one that you referenced, definitely underperformed. And that really wasn't anything to do with Southeast Asia. It was the last fund where we had uh, Indian investments. And we lost money in India, for sure. And we we, with, we stopped investing in India in you know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. So that fund, unfortunately, was scarred by that. But Navis 7 actually has performed really well. I don't know exactly when that data was, was taken. But Navis 7 will return about a 18%. Uh, IRR once we invest the we still got about half the portfolio uh, under our ownership mm -hmm. but the the comparison to the median is a little bit difficult because within that benchmark set of data there are lots of venture capital companies that um have their valuations are based on you know the latest round of internal fundraising where they suddenly say oh you know it's now worth 4 billion or 8 billion and i think the reality is that all of those benchmarks have dropped by I mean, in the public markets, at least, you can see companies like Grab and others, right? Mm. Uh, they've all dropped by 70 or 80 or in some cases, 90%. And so that median data is grossly inflated by the inclusion of venture capital benchmarks in the overall um, performance set. Mm -hmm. And I think if you were to look at the data today, you know, that 18% that you quoted would be less than half that amount, for sure. Uh, and the only thing I'd say in closing is, the, is that although the public markets have, obviously, they adjust in real time, right? So we see just, I'm just using Grab as an example, but we see Grab's share price. Uh, and we can see that over the last 12 months, it's gone from X to Y, right? But in the private venture capital space, I'd be very surprised if people have moved down their internal valuations as quickly. In other words, there's always a lag effect, uh, particularly when markets going downwards, right? There's always a lag effect when private equity marks to market its investments. And so maybe that that the, the, the median that you described, maybe it hasn't been cut in half just yet. That's only because people are lagging a little bit six months behind the public markets to actually reset their valuations. So that will go down into mid, you know, mid single digits, frankly, in the next, uh, if not already in the next nine months. I want to turn our attention to the Malaysian landscape. Navis operates a 230 million ringgit Malaysia Growth Opportunities Fund focusing on domestic investments. I mean, the value pales in comparison to the size of the other funds mentioned, right? I think uh, the Navis uh, 7 was 1.5 billion and the current uh, 8 is about 900 million US dollars. Do you That's think right. this indicates um, the lack of opportunities or the lack of depth in the Malaysian landscape for private equity? I mean, coupled with the fact that all of your recent acquisitions in the past year have been outside of Malaysia, do you think that this, it, this shows something lacking in our landscape? 
Well, uh, we have made some investments in Malaysia in the last year, um, and we continue to make investments in the durian uh, sector, for example, and in the private hospital sector. Uh, so Malaysia is not unattractive to us. But you're right that, I mean, the, that, that um, Malaysian Growth Opportunities Fund was very substantially a response to a government initiative in setting up Equinus. And uh, we were very, um, we, we had a good relationship with the people that formed Equinus. And we wanted to be helpful and they were looking to outsource funds to, to different fund managers to help them get going and we said sure we'll we'll definitely help uh, so it was always going to be a small fund but frankly i mean you're right though your conclusion is correct which it, which is it's very difficult to raise a large fund purely for malaysia uh because the opportunity set a isn't quite big enough for a, a large fund and b you don't get much diversification and i think when investors look at southeast asia they want diversification across many different countries as opposed to making a single country bet and anybody that was going to make a single country bet, they would inevitably look to the countries with larger populations. Mm. So they might say, OK, well, Indonesia is big enough, both as an economy and as a population for me to make a single country bet, maybe the same with, with Vietnam. But Malaysia isn't going to get above the threshold of size of either population or economy to where it's where it's eligible, really, to make a sensible single country bet. What do you think would change then? What would make, uh, I guess, Malaysia a more investable place for PE? Is there something in the current circumstances that you think could be improved, that could be made more, that could be rejuvenated? No, I mean, I think the characteristics that I've described are very much structural, right? You can't double the population overnight, um, much as Dr. Mahathir wished he could have done. I remember when I first came here, he was looking at a target of 60 million people for Malaysia. Um and, you know, the economy is, has developed uh, pretty finely, 12,000 US dollars GDP per capita, but you can't change that overnight. I think the general conditions for investing in, in Malaysia are actually pretty good. We've never had a particular issue. Um, there are some sectors of the economy that are still a little bit tricky from booming ownership and so on, but those tend to be enforced in a slightly more light touch way, I would say. But there isn't much to be done in terms of taxation, repatriation of profits. I think we've never found it difficult to invest and make money and then repatriate that capital to where it came from uh, in Malaysia. In fact, it's one of the much better economies overall in Southeast Asia. I want to turn our attention to private credit, where Navis is making a foray into private credit with the launch of Navis Asia Credit in July. You have Justin Ferrier of BlackRock to helm this um, outfit. Is this a conscious strategy to mitigate the slowdown in private equity deals that's expected with the onset of the recession? No. It's, uh, it's nothing to do with that at all. Um, what it's got to do with is that the Navis's private equity solution uh, or offering to entrepreneurs is quite a demanding one, which isn't always relevant on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so, and just to summarize what it is, essentially the proposition is that we're gonna take control of your company and we're gonna pay you a nice amount of money to buy 51, 60% of your company. But we're going to stay in partnership together for the next five, six years, however long. We're going to grow like crazy. We're going to professionalize. Uh, we're probably going to try and pivot uh, in, a, in an ESG direction. And then we're going to sell 100% of that business together to a, to a strategic player. And we'll sell 100%. So we'll cash out, you'll cash out, and so on. Now, if you think about the life cycle of an entrepreneur or, or an SME, right, they're around for 10, 20, 30 years. And only once, if ever, do they have the thinking that would lead them to allow an Avis investment in their company. But the thing that preoccupies that same entrepreneur on a daily, weekly, monthly basis is, you know, how do I get my hands on less dilutive or non-dilutive growth capital? Because mm -hmm. I'm in a growing part of the world and I want to grow. And so 
you know, we have thousands and thousands of relationships with SMEs across all of the countries where Navis invests. And if we have the private credit solution, in addition to our private equity solution, we can have a conversation with them every day of the week instead of, you know, once a decade. Okay. And and so we, we you know, we're able to monetize the platform that we have um, quite clearly uh, with, with a private credit fund alongside everything else that we do. Okay. So it's a way of reaching to customers, giving them more options for those who shy away from a PE, um, I guess, mechanism. Perhaps private credit could be that way. But why would borrowers choose private credit over a traditional bank loan? Well, uh, b- banks don't lend enough to the SME sector, right? I mean, the bank, the SMEs account for something like 50% of GDP activity in Southeast Asia, but uh, they only account for about 16% of, of bank lending. So banks uh, prefer big corporates, uh, I mean, things that are very real estate backed, um, you know, very traditional sort of, you know, trade financing products, but they don't really invest in SMEs beyond that, uh, okay. lend to SMEs beyond that. So there's a vacuum. A huge vacuum, actually. Okay, so you're saying that there is a market for private credit among the SMEs. Um, that said, though, private credit uh, is currently dominated by big names. Goldman Sachs and BlackRock account for half of the 172 billion US dollars raised globally for direct lending in the first nine months of this year. As investors become more picky about where to park their money, wouldn't Navis be at a disadvantage given that you're a new entrant to this space and um, it's relatively untapped here? Well, um, you know, the, the, the money that you just described being raised by Goldman Sachs and BlackRock is not coming to Southeast Asia, almost none of it, right? I mean, uh, and in fact, just to give you a, a, a listeners a, a, a bit of data, if you take <clears throat> all the money that's been raised for private equity in the last few years, right, about 30% of that ends up in the Asia-Pacific region, right? If you take all the private credit that has been raised globally in the last few years, only 6% of it is in the Asia-Pacific region. So it just kind of shows you how immature and underdeveloped it is. Now, back to your question about why Navis. Well, I think that any investor, rather than sort of giving money to somebody in New York and then saying, why don't you go and invest that in Southeast Asia where you don't have many people on the ground and you may not have many relationships, if that's their choice versus Navis, which has been dealing with entrepreneurs and SMEs in dozens of countries, well, many, many countries, not dozens, but uh, over a dozen countries in Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, uh, who knows the people over decades, uh, obviously the, the better risk return are the people that have more local on the ground knowledge. So I'd give it to Navis and a heartbeat. How much are you looking to fundraise for private credit activities at this stage? What are your targets, I suppose, for the coming year? I think we should try and raise about $350 million. Uh, it won't be a particularly big fund, uh, but it's a first fund. And so it must be appropriately sized. We're already starting to talk to um, both investors and to borrowers. Uh, you, you want to have a pipeline of money coming in, but also a pipeline of places to deploy that capital. So that's already started. Um, and we should have a first close of that fund uh, by the end of the first half of next year. And then we'll probably have a final close, you know, six months to 12 months after that. Nicholas, in the little bit of time that we have, I'd like to ask what's your outlook for the year ahead? I think everyone's talking about the recession. Interest rates are still rising, um, not due to peak until later, mid-next mid year. Will you be less focused on consumer-facing and more on business-facing industries, I guess, for your future PE projects, given the current macroeconomic conditions? You know, I don't think there's going to be a, a recession in Southeast Asia, uh, personally. I think Southeast Asia is in better relative shape than most any other part of the world. Um, but yeah, there will be a slowdown because of the reliance on external demand uh, coming from you know places that are going to go into recession, uh, Europe, you know, US, Japan, uh, elsewhere. 
Um, but I think that for, from our point of view, remember, you know, we're not investing in the short term, right? In fact, uh, when companies are feeling, owners are feeling insecure about their environment, that's when they might be more prepared to sell control. And if you've got a four to five to seven year horizon, you can look through um, a year of slowing growth or even even recession. But of course, you always fine tune your thinking a little bit uh, to the macroeconomic conditions. And in our case, it simply makes us focus on areas that are a more resilient in terms of demand. So back to healthcare, back to private education, for example, and B, the industries that have real pricing power uh, and that can price their way through uh, in cost inflationary pressures. Um, and, as, you know, so increasingly we're looking for sectors that fulfill those two criteria, but they're out there. Um, so I don't think we're intending to slow down our investment pace. All right, Nicholas, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Not at all. Thank you very much. I've been speaking to Datuk Sri Nicholas Bloy, co-founder and managing partner of Navis Capital Partners. This has been The Breakfast Grill on BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.